Hello, I'm Kyle Willoughby. Joining me is James Foey. Yeah! Surprise, surprise! <laughs> and this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And as you can obviously see, Claire is out for today, so we have our uh, venerable James Foey filling hey. in. Today we're talking about something that's not really new at all, actually. It's uh, the, the Studio Ghibli film Princess Mononoke. Well, it's the end of the summertime, and the summertime is the time for looking back at Studio Ghibli films. Um, so James is going to talk a bit about the history of Princess Mononoke and some of the themes and ideas that are, are coming from there. Yes, we'll be discussing the Muromachi period, which it's set in. Mmm. And I'm going to talk... <laughs> Mmm, delicious. <laughs> Ooh, I'm choking it. <laughs> and I'm going to talk a bit about uh, Miyazaki and the long road that led him to this movie. Also a bit about its reception in Japan and when it was first released and how it made its way to America. Little summary before I get into uh, my Muromachi period segment. Mm. Uh, Princess Mononoke is the story of a young man coming from the Amishi tribe, this far-off tribe we'll talk a little more about in my segment, um, who's been cursed, and he's searching for a cure. And in his search, he seeks the deer god, and he finds the deer god in a forest that is under attack by humans who want to use it for industry, and that is being resisted by the god animals of the forest that also serve the deer god and are leading their animal people against this. Among them lives a human girl who's been raised by the wolf god, and her name is Mononoke. Or San. She's referred to as San. She's referred to as San, but the princess Mononoke is that princess, but we'll we'll call her San because that is how she introduces herself. Yeah. And the leader of Iron Town, the industrial community that is waging uh, something of a war on the forest, is Lady Eboshi. Yes. And lots of other stuff happens in there. Uh, There's a a plot with an emperor trying to find uh, immortality. So it's not just, you know, man versus nature, but that is one of the primary themes. Yes. So I wanted to tackle this from the perspective a little bit of someone who had seen the film as a teenager and then rewatched it for this episode. And I watched and rewatched it as a teenager. We can get into that in the opinion segment about, you know, our, our personal history with this film. But one of the things I wondered when I first saw it as a kid was just, who are these people? And uh, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? It wasn't clear to me. I kept trying to figure out why people I liked were doing bad things. <laughs> and why people I didn't like seemed to do some good things. And uh, also, it you know we talked about man versus nature. Okay, fine. That's super clear, right? Yeah. You can root for one or the other. But then, if it's man versus nature, why are the men, all the humans, fighting each other? Yeah. You know? And... and, and if they all serve the emperor, everybody references serving the, the emperor, emperor in a relationship with them. So why aren't they all getting along? And the answer to that is very complicated, I'm sure. Well, yes, but I, I, I summed it up in a sentence I was about to say. Okay. <laughs> it's the Muromachi period, uh, which is why my segment is about the Muromachi period. So I'd like to quote Miyazaki Hayao, who is the director of the film, about why he picked the Muromachi period. And this is a quote that comes out of his proposal for doing the film, which was released in a memoir a few years ago, a a multi-part memoir of all of his work. With this setting, 
My aim is to depict a freer image of the characters without being bound by the conventions, preconceptions, and prejudices of traditional period dramas. Now, he goes on to say and discuss what he means about that, that it usually just shows in period dramas in Japan, and I think elsewhere too in the world, uh, you have this feudal image of just we have the very rich and the very poor and yeah. not a lot in between. So he, wa- he was saying that actually we've learned uh, in archaeology and ethnology and through our history that actually... No, it's much more rich than that. There was a lot more going on. There were all kinds of people in between. Uh, Back to his quote, Disorder and fluidity were the norm in the world of the Muromachi period. And he gives it as 1336 to 1573, which is about what it is uh, by various definitions. He says, It was a time when present-day Japan was being formed out of social upheaval, when those below overcame those above. And we'll okay. talk about that yeah, upheaval. What does that and, mean? Yeah. Well, t- I would summarize that as when the cats are away, the mice will play. Gotcha. <laughs> That's one of my segment points later on. But yeah, those in charge were were being taken out by those below them, sometimes those far below them. Because 1573 was around the time that the Nobunaga shogunate eventually took over everything. That's what it is. It, it, it actually, the Muromachi period encompasses the Warring States period. Okay. Yeah. And that's got Nobunaga Oda and also often popularly depicted in anime. Yeah. So continuing his quote, he says, The ethos of eccentricity, swaggering scoundrels, and the chaotic rise of new arts held sway. This was a more unpredictable and fluid time, more magnanimous and free, with less clear class distinctions between warriors and villagers and women as depicted in the drawings of artisans and tradespeople. Herein lies the meaning in creating this work, as we face the coming chaotic era of the 21st century. What a cool dude. So cool, so cool. So this is a period, the Muromachi period, where you have something like a middle class. You yeah. have some working class people who aren't just filthy peasants. And you have people who were aristocratic or were uh, samurai lords being cast down and replaced, sometimes not by other samurai. Yeah. Uh, and this is the, the soup that he wanted to have this uh, film set in. So to start talking about all these different groups and and why (laughs) they don't seem to all be friends and working together even though they're humans. First off, our hero, Ashitaka, is from a separate ethnic group that had its own language and government, the Amishi people. And they give that name in the movie. I just want to inform you that the Amishi were a real people. They probably didn't ride elk. I didn't see anything about about that. that. They rode horses. But if you can imagine a a sedentary hunter-gatherer group of people that were dangerous. We're we're talking horseback archers. Gotcha. So basically imagine Japanese Mongols living in the north of Japan and who were called barbarians by the emperor and by his shoguns. In fact, the original job of the shogun as a military commander appointed by the emperor was to take out the Amishi. Oh, was to take really? out the Yeah, I saw in the Encyclopedia Britannica actually called the shogun, which does mean troop leader literally, it gave as its definition the meaning barbarian quelling generalissimo. <laughs> like that's what a shogun yeah. is and it evolved into something else. But anyway, it was to take out those people about 500 years before this period. So the film starts with our guy coming from the last vestiges of this people who were ethnically different than the Japanese. 
and were almost wiped out. And genetically now in Japan, when you look for them, they're, they're there, but in small traces. Yeah. They were kind of pushed away. So he shows up as a total outsider, but nobility, to try to look into this conflict and seek a cure for himself. Princess Mononoke, or San, as we'll call her, she, in, in his uh, proposal that I was quoting from, Mon- Miyazaki says that she is based on a clay figurine. Her character, her look, is based on a clay figurine from the Jomon people. In, um, in Indonesia, right? Well, actually, in, uh, in Japan. Now, I don't oh. know where the Jomon came from, but they're the people who inhabited Japan in prehistory. Okay, More than 10,000 years before you know yeah. other people got yeah. there, when the Yayoi, who were uh, rice agriculturalists, got there, it was those two people, the hunter-gatherer Jomon and the Yayoi, that formed the ethnic and cultural Japanese that we think of today. That's the beginning of what we think of as the Yamato people that most Japanese ethnically identify with. I, I mention all this to say that our hero is an outsider, and that our heroine is modeled on a Japanese uh, people that were closer to nature, which makes yeah. a lot of sense for how she's living among the gods Definitely. of the forest. Now, why aren't the humans getting along? As Miyazaki mentioned, things are in flux. And the easiest way to say why no one's really listening to the emperor or even the people that listen to the emperor aren't getting along is that no one is really in charge. Yeah, because the emperor isn't really in charge. But the funny thing about this era is that in other eras where there's a shogun, the emperor is a figurehead. I mean, the original shoguns followed the emperor, but once the shoguns realized they had all military power and they might as well rule everything, they had the power and the emperor was a cultural leader. Lived the cushy life. Yes, and and did artistically and culturally that, that conversation of how we live as Japanese, the emperor got to lead the cultural conversation. Sure. But anyway, uh, in this case, even the shogun is not really in charge. It's a very funny situation where one shogun it ended and the guy that helped end it was doing so on behalf of the emperor because the emperor wanted to reassert actual control of the oh, national okay. government. And that man was Go Daigo. And he was able to do that with Ashikaga's, with the Ashikaga's help. And his reign was called the Kenmu Restoration, where the emperor was fully in control of Japan. It was supposed to be a new golden age. And with lots of reforms, it lasted two years. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody liked those reforms. And Ash, the Ashikaga, who had helped him take over and defeat the old shogunate, said, wait a minute, now I'm the top general in the country. Yeah. What if I ruled what everything? I ruled? <laughs> and so the imperial family split between those who would willingly become the puppets of the new shogun and Godaigo, who said, no, I was serious about ruling Japan. And yeah. he had to run out of Kyoto and make a new government elsewhere. The whole beginning of the Muromachi period which we might be inside of in this film, takes place for 60 years with two emperors and one shogun. Nobody's really really in charge. Because the fun thing about the Ashikaga shogunate is that they have a military that's strong enough to take over Kyoto. Yeah. That's the best city. Yeah. And it's the, 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 the seat of the empire, right? But they don't have a military that can go and bother anybody else. They don't have a military to go and take out the rest of Japan. So there's this thing that I read described as a power balance where everybody outside the capital said, I don't want to rule Japan. (laughs) 
You can't tell me what to do, though. Yeah. Right? So I'm not going to fight you for it. I'll let you say you rule all Japan. Yeah. But here's the deal. In response for me and everybody else not giving you a lot of trouble, in my own lands, I get to I do, do what I want. whatever I want. So it's all these people who give lip service to the shogun, but who get to rule their, their own yeah. estates. Now, that means that he's in this, the, the Ashikaga are in this weird position where uh, they're giving political cover by saying, oh, yeah, you're my guy in that region, right? Yeah. That guy was already that guy in that region. Yeah. But if anybody resists him at home, he can say, well, I do have political authority because of the shogun. It's more a propaganda tool. Yeah. Uh, something just people say. Now, where things get a little more squirrely and where you have more upheaval is that Ashikaga Yoshimitsu, one of the most successful shoguns, came up with a plan for actually asserting national authority and ending the whole we have two emperors in Japan thing. He said, hey, emperors, northern line, southern line, northern lines with us, southern line, you're descended from Go Daigo. You say you're really the legitimate ones. History does too. What if... Instead of having two of you simultaneously, we just agreed, bring the imperial family back together, and we'll start out with the north in charge, and then the southern line takes over, and we just go back, back and, and forth, forth with okay. each generation. Yeah. And the south said, that sounds like a fair deal. He said, cool. Let's just start with the northern, though, <laughs> our guys. <laughs> and the south said yes, and so it just became one northern, uh, northern emperor. They never passed they never it back passed like it back. they said. So that's one problem solved. Solved. Yoshimitsu also said, hey, all you guys who live separately from me, doing whatever you want, and I can't stop you, I don't have the military to get over there, but I can't apply enough pressure to you and make your lives uncomfortable enough that I can convince you to come live with me in the capital. So it's kind of Ned Stark, not in the same reason that... Yeah, well, you take a hostage. Robert, you take a yeah, hostage. you take a hostage. Well, that's common in, in a lot, and nobility all throughout China, Europe. Yeah, everywhere. Japan. It's a great idea. So he says, hey, come live with me. Now I got you. Yeah. Now I can really assert my authority. The problem was that now that those people aren't at home, the people at home are like, well, he doesn't live with us. So how is he going to tell us <laughs> what to do? And that's part of the upheaval that Miyazaki's talking about because you have all these people taking control of these, these regional areas that had been autonomous from the national government, and some of them were the second best samurai lord yeah. who's now taking his opportunity, and some of it was just bands of farmers. Just some, gearing, getting up, gearing together. Yeah, and saying, forget that. We never liked him. Let's yeah. rule ourselves. Let's let's have self-government and appoint an elder among us to handle our affairs. And we'll and we'll form farm collectives that pool our money to pay for people to defend us. You That's know, really and, cool. Yeah, and we'll work with the lower samurai, the ones who weren't even close to becoming samurai lords, really? and they'll fight for us. Yeah. And not only farmers were doing that, which is key to the film, uh, but small business interests. We're saying, hey, like if let, we have a mining settlement and we don't want uh, some samurai lord over us or we found this mine, you know what? This is our s square yeah, of land. We're going to hold it. We're going to hold it. And and at that time, there wasn't as big a class distinction between who was a samurai and who wasn't. People could pick up a sword if they weren't technically of the samurai class. That's something yeah. from later. Yeah. So in Iron Town, in the film, these people who are defending their little thing from the local samurai lord who might want to come and take it. Yeah. That's what that is. Yeah. yeah, they all work for the emperor, but outside the capital, he can't say anything. He doesn't Mil have any power. He doesn't have any power. Military might is what does it. Yeah, there's some political power and leverage, and he has a bigger army back at the capital, but it's not here. Yeah. It can't help defend Iron Town. Yeah. And if this samurai lord wants to take it, then it'll rightfully be his. Yeah. But you can also defend yourself, and it'll rightfully be yours. <laughs> um, and we all are with the emperor. <laughs> anyway, one of the things that I, I want to mention, uh, just because of the role of, of women 
um, in this period being key to why Miyazaki wanted to focus on it. Something in the film where you have multiple very strong female characters and women as a as a whole group being stronger than I'm used to seeing in anime and especially Japanese period dramas. Yeah. Part of that was in an attempt to boost commerce, the role of women in Japan was in something of a resurgence that had carried over from the last Kamakura shogunate, where uh, you have this city that's really what's under your control. So how are you going to get in a position to actually assert national control? You need as much money as possible, which means boosting commerce whatever way you can even women in the workforce, right? <laughs> they take... would stoop to such lengths. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that and trading with China, which is also in the film where, you know, there's money to be made there. Yeah. It's part of how Lady Eboshi is able to make money. Also, all these little skirmishes that are happening, all these little battles, they're profitable for everyone who can help the military with food or supplies. Also, like Lady Eboshi in the film, money, money to be made by trade with China, money to be made by selling armaments, Yeah. right? And it can even be made by a woman. Now, I also want to mention in the film we have women who are able to defend themselves fighting. In this period, there were female samurai who were pioneers who were going into unsettled territories with their samurai families and claiming them. Uh, They were called bushi, the the female samurai, and they would fight. Yeah. And for hundreds of years, that was a thing. And their favorite weapon, in the movie, it's rifles, but I don't know that they had those actually yet. He's he's playing around a little bit with history. But they would wield naginata. What's uh, a naginata? The, the descriptions I read said it's like a halberd, but when I saw it, it's a giant sword attached to a spear. <laughs> Which maybe that's what a halberd is, but I think of the halberd more as an axe. Yeah. It's super cool. And I've seen so many women in anime wield it, and it turns out that... That's what they would use. Yeah, it's historically accurate, because you want to keep the man away because he's physically stronger. Yeah. So you want to have a more ranged uh, melee yeah. weapon. And women are depicted in art from that time period for hundreds of years, through the Muromachi period, wielding naginatas in battle, even into the uh, Warring States period. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. So, if you watch Princess Mononoke and you see all these people competing and it seems like there's no national government to stop them... (laughs) It's like anarchy! (laughs) That's why it is, but it's also, I mean, one of the reasons he did it in the film was because, you know, to have all these ethnicities and different cultures, people competing for resources and it leading to uh, to bloodshed, this is the world, maybe. And maybe it's more like the world he saw coming in the 21st century than other periods in Japan. Yeah, yeah. Very nice, James. Thank you. That was awesome. I'm glad you liked it. Um, I'm going to you know switch gears and talk a little bit more about Miyazaki, the director, writer, artist who made this film. So Miyazaki was born in 1941 in Tokyo, and his father was the director of Miyazaki Airplane, which was a factory which manufactured parts for fighter planes. Um, And the young Miyazaki twice had to evacuate his home for a new one, uh, avoiding American firebombings. This was during World War II, and his father worked for a plant manufacturing Zero parts. Zero was one of the fighter planes that Imperial Japan used in World War II. Oh, is that why he wanted to make The Wind Rises his whole career? Yes, that's one of the big things, and and really informed how he was going to, like, the art that he would make later. 
So all of this happened before he was five years old. And from a young age, Miyazaki aspired to be an artist. And he had trouble drawing people, but he really enjoyed drawing tanks and airplanes. And airplanes and airships would be an almost constant presence in his future work uh, with the stuff that he creates. Can you think of a Miyazaki movie that doesn't have a plane or an airship? There's not many. Well, Mononoke is one of the only, one of the few that, that probably don't. Yeah, because he couldn't fit that into the Muramachi yeah. period. <laughs> he loves flying. He loves airplanes. And it makes sense that he, you know, that's what his father did. That's what he grew up around, as was being burned. <laughs> mm. Because it was wartime. Now, he found work as a young man animating some of Japan's classic films uh, and shows throughout the 60s and 70s. He worked on titles such as Gulliver's Travels Beyond the Moon and Alibaba and The Forty Thieves. I didn't recognize any of these, but these were older 60s, 70s Japanese animated uh, shows and movies that had some success. And it was in the late 60s that he started drawing and writing his own manga, his own comic. People of the Desert was what it was called, and it was under the pen name Akitsu Saburo. Now, Miyazaki wouldn't get a chance to direct an animated film until 1979's Castle of Cagliostro. One of my favorite movies. It's one of my top favorite movies. I actually, I've never seen it. It's worth rewatching. I would lend it to you or rewatch it with you. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually like to see it. I've seen the anime it was based off of, which was Lupin the Third, And the film was well-received by critics. And Miyazaki's distinct art style and attention to detail was also noted by people who watched it. They were like, wow. This is a step, a cut above maybe what the show is. Oh, even <laughs> more than a cut, more, more than, than a cut. cut. The writing, everything. Like I, the, the series is fun. He elevates it to something yeah, else. Yeah. Now Miyazaki's next film would cement him as one of Japan's best and most creative animator, writer, directors. Um, and it was a film based on a manga series of his own creation called Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. So Nausicaa was set in a dystopian future. It's filled with giant insects. Featured a female protagonist. And this was one of the first uh, Miyazaki film to feature these future trademark themes of his, which was environmentalism and feminism. And when asked about these themes in the movie, uh, he denies that, that they're even there. He says that he just wants to entertain. Um, this is a quote from him. Why did the lead character have to be female? Well, it doesn't look truthful if the guy has power like that. Women are able to straddle both the real world and the other world. Like mediums, in the oldest form of the Cinderella story, she was able to travel freely to the other world through the heart. That's what empowered her. It isn't the sword play that Nausicaa is good at. It's that she understands both the human world and the insect world. No animals feel danger in her in approaching her. She's able to totally erase her sense of presence, existence. Males there are aggressive, only in the human sphere, very shallow. So it had to be a female character. Um, and this is from an interview uh, in Empire Magazine with Dan Jolin. And it's worth noting... I think when he gets older, he gets more honest about what he's trying to grapple yeah, with. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. So it's it's worth noting that almost every Miyazaki film features a female protagonist. There's only a handful that don't. I think, like, maybe just Yeah, but feminism can also be a dirty word, I think, also in, in Japan. So oh. This movie's going to sell. He's, yeah. He's not, he's not necessarily highlighting that. Yeah. And he also he doesn't like to promote himself as like art can save the world. I'm saving the world with my yeah, movies. He's, he's very pessimistic he's about. Very, he's very pessimistic. Super about pessimistic it. about what his effect, his impact can be. Yeah, um, um, but he's he's dealing with real things. He, he is. Trying he to definitely is. So following the success of Nausicaa, Miyazaki, along with longtime friend and partner Isao Takahata, would found Studio Ghibli, the home to all of his future movies. 
Now, Miyazaki and Ghibli would continue churning out animated hit movie after anim- animated hit movie, with only one in there uh, that didn't do as well, but is still considered a classic. And these movies in the 80s were Castle in the Sky, My Neighbor Totoro, and Kiki's Delivery Service. And these were all the- done in the 80s, Castle in the Sky, My Neighbor Totoro, and Kiki's Delivery Service. And they all received, or they mostly all received critical praise and financial success. Castle in the Sky didn't do as well as the others, but is still considered kind of a cult classic. Now, work on Mononoke wouldn't begin until 1994, and Princess Mononoke followed the film Poco Rosso, which is the Miyazaki Ghibli film right before it. And Poco Rosso was a movie about a World War I flying ace who was transformed into an anthropomorphic pig, very fun, (laughs) but still flies planes, combating sky pirates over the Adriatic Sea. Sounds like a good time. It Flying does. planes, Miyazaki. Um, and Pocahontas originally started as a lighthearted children's film, as were all of Miyazaki's movies up to this point. But during its creation, the Yugoslav War broke out and deeply affected the tone and themes of Pocahontas. So this is another uh, quote from Miyazaki. I wanted to make something light, but then Yugoslavia collapsed, and all these conflicts broke out in Dubrovnik, Croatia, and the islands which were my setting. Suddenly, in the real world, it became a place where battle was actually happening. So then Pocahontas became a more complicated film. And this is from that same uh, interview from Empire with Dan Jolin. That's where he's not pretending anymore. But I do think Naushika Valley of the Wind is actually pretty serious in tone. Yeah. It's not, it's not a jolly romp. Yeah, that's true. And the, but this darker tone and more complex thematic ideas would stick with Miyazaki for Mononoke. And it, it seems like the, the Yugoslav War really did have a profound effect on him. Miyazaki had actually drawn sketches and done some light storyboarding for a film resembling Princess Mononoke in the 70s, Uh, and these would be the basis for what was to come. The original idea was more of a basic samurai story, very largely inspired by Kurosawa films, Uh, though a lot of the imagery for it had been done done by him in previous films. For example, the characters in this original storyboard were supposed to fly around on clouds, and flight was something that was constantly featured in his movies, so we wanted to try and get away from that a little bit. And it's also worth noting that the name San, which is Princess Mononoke's character's name in uh, the movie, San means three or third, and that was in the original storyboard, she was supposed to be the third daughter of a samurai lord. Now, Miyazaki saw this as his last chance to make this movie, knowing that what he wanted to do with it would take a lot out of him. He was still in his 30s, uh, still in his prime as he saw it, and he had the energy and perseverance to push through and create this very complicated and beautiful and long film. Uh, And here's another quote from him. I really did not want to make a simple, cheerful love story which ignores and avoids confrontations with the reality of our serious, complicated problems. Once again, I'm feeling a little uh, a little Yugoslav war, you know, fatigue coming from him. Mm-hmm. I believe that this is a propaganda movie because I wanted to send my message and thoughts to society. However, I did not intend to convey simple and irritating messages such as, let's save nature. I'm sure that we, all of us, already know such things. I hope that my audience will think hard and deeply as the movie unfolds and possibly Mononoke Hime can inspire the young audience. That is my goal and ambition in making this movie. Um, This is from How Mononoke Hime Was Born, a drama on paper. Now, Princess Mononoke was largely inspired by a forest on Yakushima Island in southern Japan as well, which was also an inspiration for his earlier film, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, kind of pulling more into those environmental themes, which we see in a lot of his work. 
Princess Mononoke was notable also for its dedication to hand-drawn cells and pictures. Only 10% of the movie was done with any computer generating, uh, something which was unheard of at the time and is crazy unheard of now. Um, if you think about it, Toy Story, the first Toy Story came out in 1995. This was started in 1994 and released in 1997. Beauty and the Beast had used computer-generated mm-hmm. themes, so had The Little Mermaid. It's funny, he has nice words to say about things like Toy Story. He does. It's not for him. It's not for him. But he still likes it. No, definitely. Miyazaki stated that computers are just another form of pen and pencil. I prefer a regular old pen and pencil. Now, Mononoke features 144,000 hand-drawn cells. Of those 144,000, Miyazaki himself is estimated to have redrawn and altered personally around 80,000 of them. That's Oh, it's too much. Yeah, which is why he he want, he knew if he really wanted to get this movie out, he had to do it while he was still a younger guy. Yeah, but I feel like at that point, he's late 50s. It, all that work is part of why he thought he could never do a film like that again. Yeah, this is why after he was done with Mononoke, he said he was retiring, which wouldn't, you know, turned out obviously not to be true, but it was it just seemed to take a lot out of him. If that's how he makes movies, how could he make another one? Yeah, how could he keep going like that? Now, the movie enjoyed massive success in Japan, and it actually dethroned E.T. as the highest-grossing film there ever, though it was to be eclipsed shortly after by Titanic. (laughs) But it was also the first animated film to win a Japanese Oscar, though it was snubbed by the U.S., not even getting nominated in the foreign film category. Shame. Shame, I know. It's It's so shameful. Its American distribution was to be handled by Disney and Miramax, with the infamous Harvey Weinstein in charge. Now, this is a really cool story. According to legend, Weinstein wanted to cut the movie's long runtime down down, uh, for a lot of American audiences. Miyazaki responded by sending him a samurai sword with the inscription, no cuts on it. Um, Now, this is the legend. So, in an interview in The Guardian from September of 2005, Miyazaki cleared this up. Keep in mind, this is 2005. Actually, my producer did that. Although I did go to New York to meet this man, this Harvey Weinstein and I was bombarded with this aggressive attack, all these demands for cuts. I defeated him. Because <laughs> <laughs> the movie was not cut for America. It was kept its full 204 minutes. No, this is what it is. Yeah. You can have Americans saying English words for these characters, and yeah. that's it. Exactly. And I think it's fun. It's prudent to point out the, the date of this. 2005, Miyazaki said, I met this Harvey Weinstein, and he was aggressive. You know, but I stood up for him. And this is 2005 when Harvey Weinstein was considered this darling of Hollywood, Mm -hmm. you know, before people knew about the gross, creepy rapiness that he he is. Now, Miramax and Disney signed a deal to distribute Ghibli films, but Miyazaki would not not let them have any merchandising rights, much to their anger, preventing Totoro Happy Meals in the future. And Mononoke's American release did not do nearly as well, with the film not really being marketed and the release being limited to very few theaters, even fewer than was originally agreed upon. Still, despite not marketing this film and then releasing it to even fewer theaters than they were supposed to, Disney and Miramax blamed the film itself for its poor sales. Uh, Now, John Lasseter, the infamous former head of Pixar, would take over the future distributions of Ghibli films, being a self-described huge fan. 
Uh, Lasseter is the one to thank for Miyazaki's next film, Spirited Away, getting the attention that it did in America. Yeah. He was the one who really like spearheaded that. And he also would apparently show, if, if him and the people of Pixar had writer's block or were suffering from creativity fatigue, they would watch a Ghibli film to reinvigorate themselves. Yeah. Uh, specifically a Miyazaki one. It's the height of the animation craft. Yeah. The animated movie craft. His movies are the absolute top of it. Definitely. Only marketing would fail it. Now, the translated script for the subtitles and the English dub was arranged and worked on by none other, none other than Neil Gaiman. Weinstein had originally wanted to use Tarantino for this, but he refused and recommended Gaiman, apparently because his mom liked, seemed to like this guy, Neil Gaiman. What? And this is back when Neil, mostly what he had worked on was uh, Sandman, was what he was known for. Oh, yeah, I'm just starting to read that now. Oh, it's so good. And, and, and Gaiman t- talks a lot about the how difficult it was to translate this in a in a meaningful way. I'm gonna we'll post an article about it. It's really interesting. He's uh, too talented. He's too. He's another it's too one. Much. Too much. You just find out. Oh, by the way, he translated Princess Mononoke okay, for you. Yeah, oh. and arranged the script. <laughs> so to this day, Mononoke enjoys cult status as one of the greatest animated movies of all time, and one of the greatest movies of all time. And despite having heavy themes, it is still at heart a movie for kids. And this is a, I'm gonna end with a, another quote from Miyazaki. I think I really exhausted the animation staff with this film. I knew that was going to happen, but felt that we had to do this. But when I finished, I didn't understand it. What did I make? At first I decided, this is something children shouldn't see. But in the end I realized, no, this is something that children must see. Because adults, they don't get it. Children understood it. Oh. So, James, what do you think of Princess Mononoke? You know, I mentioned Cagle of Cagliostro is one of my favorite films. This is another. uh, It was a really cool experience for me to rewatch it with you and Claire because I'd seen it many times as a teenager, but I hadn't watched it in a while. And to have something I loved so much as a kid be even better than I remembered it because I can watch it better now than I could then. I can understand more of it. Oh, my goodness. it It was so wonderful. I, I first encountered Princess Mononoke because um, having watched a lot of Dragon Ball Z and other anime on Cartoon Network as a kid, uh, me and my younger brother Aaron got this magazine that listed the 50 greatest anime of all time, uh, shows and, and films, and it listed Princess Mononoke as number one. And it was only three years old at that point. Oh yeah, it had just come out. <laughs> it was a year since it had come out in America. Yeah. You know, these were things that you could get in America too. And we thought, we have to have this. And it blew my mind. I didn't know that this medium contained that. I didn't know yet. I knew I loved it. I didn't know it could really be art. Yeah. And I didn't appreciate it. I, I, I mean, I... <laughs> you appreciated Dragon Ball Z, I'm sure, but oh, I not loved in it. the I same still, way. It's one of my favorite things ever. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that... Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to do my segment the way I did about, like, well, why are these people fighting... And who are the who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Is because as a teenager, I looked at this film that he crafted so beautifully and so even-handedly. Yeah. And as a kid, I'm looking for wait a minute. Even as a teenager, who Who's am I supposed the, to yeah. like? Who? Yeah. Why are people who I think I'm supposed to dislike and who seem villainous and are doing terrible things to nature? Why am I also being feeling sympathetic to them? Yeah. It was confusing to me and awkward, but it captivated me. I love this movie also. When we rewatched it, Claire hadn't hadn't seen it, and we were in a a group of some people who hadn't seen it. Not everyone who watched with us had seen it before. And I remember uh, one friend being like, wait, so is she's the bad guy then, right? And we were like, no, not really. (laughs) No. You got to keep watching. Yeah, Yeah. because it's not so cut and dry that way. 
I mean, there are people, I would say that there are people who are deeply good, yeah. right? And that puts them in a very difficult position because the deeply, I would say the people who, um, the person who I think is the the good guy, right? Who's uh, the most virtuous has the terrible task of trying to sort through why everyone's fighting and see if he can stop it. Yeah. And because he's so good, he sees the goodness in these other people. He sees the righteousness of their cause and it seems for both causes and it's hard for him to figure out how to stop them from fighting. Yeah. And not in a way that's preachy, in a way that, like I said, it has you feeling different ways at different times about people. Definitely, definitely. It's funny because I approached this movie, it was not the first Ghibli film I'd seen, and it was not the first anime that I'd seen that I thought was, you know, in quotes, art. But the first anime I did think was art was another Miyazaki film, which was Spirited Away, which is the one he did right after Princess Mononoke. And I kind of went back through the catalog from there, and I remember seeing Princess Mononoke. I saw Spirited Away because my brother, older brother, given it to me. And I saw Princess Mononoke once again because of that same older brother. And then I saw another Miyazaki movie called uh, Howl's Moving Castle. And it was at Howl's Moving Castle that I realized that all of these were done by the same person. That, was like, you got like four deep in Yeah, this. I was like, wait a minute. This is all the same guy? It, it really blew my mind. And I've watched this movie fairly frequently throughout the years, probably once every couple of years. It's also my girlfriend's favorite film. Which made me feel closer to her. Yeah, it's like, that. oh, she is cool, I guess. No, I did. She's fantastic. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But I'm scared. It's one of those things where you're like, really? That's your favorite? And yeah. this thing I love too like that, that I didn't know we shared, it's it's cool. Yeah, and you can see her D&D character is based off of San. Oh my goodness. And you can San see is, it now. Yeah, I can see it, and she's a hell of a character. <laughs> I just I don't know the the it's it's cool watching this movie again and again as you get older because the it's still beautiful the art is still breathtaking and and scenic and and wonderful it's still cute at times and the themes and messages are still really poignant you think you know this movie was made twenty years ago now more yeah I think it, I think it lies in in the fairness of his viewpoint uh, he has a quote where he's he's I can't remember if it's in that Guardian uh, interview that we were talking about before where he talks about let's say someone is trying to sell an elephant's ivory on the black market. Yeah. Is that in the Guardian article? I believe so, yeah. Uh, and he talks about, well, okay, if you hear about something like that happen, you think that's awful, that's terrible, people shouldn't treat the animals that way. Yeah. At the same time, he said, what if in that part of the world where they're doing that, they need that to survive? That's the best way they can make money and provide for their family. And maybe that situation has been created by overpopulation. Yeah. Right? Because he thinks that the world is overpopulated. But once we're here, what are we going to do? Yeah. If you care about people... You know? Yeah, then then what are you going to do? Are yeah, you... and that's a person that makes a movie, has made multiple movies where nature is rising up to battle back against what man has done to it. And yet he's talking about, well, what are humans to do, though, if they're going to take care of themselves? Yeah. And in the same movie where he has nature fighting back and you're wondering, how can they do these terrible things to these, uh, to this, this forest, right? And the, and the creatures that are conscious that live here. He puts it into this film that these people are using industry to better themselves in a way that was impossible for them. People yeah. who are the dregs of society, who are able to have families, who are able to be a part of a working middle class and have jobs with dignity because of what they are doing to this forest, yeah. which is awful. And right before you get to that iron town where the, there is a middle class of people, you see, you literally go, there's a scene of farmers just getting murdered by samurai. Yes, it happens right before you get to this area where, like, you see these farmers and these, you know, people who are sick and, and decrepit and the dregs of society, like you mentioned. 
and they're not getting murdered by samurai. They're fighting back. They have a, a, a nice life. They have they work jobs, and it's hard, but they're happy. And it is possible through their exploitation of natural resources. Yeah. Miyazaki has a quote where he says, even man's inability to coexist with nature is a part of nature. Yeah. So I think we also wanted to talk a little bit about Miyazaki's general pessimism, but that kind of has a silver lining of optimism. His worldview, which I didn't know about, as even watching so many of his films, reading interviews in preparation for this, I got more of his worldview and it surprised me. Yeah, because his movies are very lighthearted, a lot of them, and they do deal with complex themes and dark themes. But at the end of the day, at the end of the movie, there there's hope there. But when you read interviews with him, doesn't seem that way. Yeah, well, it, it does, but it's like you have to... When he's talking about some things, it's really dark, but then he'll get to the other part about the hope, about where he's... He doesn't think the world is heading in a good place. He doesn't think the animation industry is headed in a good place, but he approaches it with some, of, of something of a fatalism sometimes. Where, yeah. And, and a, a just being grateful, where I think for the anime industry, he said, yes, it's changing, um, and it won't, and people are going to do it in a way that I don't like doing it, but I've been able to do the same thing for 40 years and that's incredible at any time in human history to yeah. be able to do the same career for 40 years. He said, where are the fresco painters now? Yeah. So he's not mad that his yeah. time is ending for the way he likes to animate. Well, I didn't mention this in my segment, but it's funny you, you said that about the animation industry that he's, he's kind of lamenting about. He was a union leader in the sixties. He he led he led union disputes and stuff that, um, that happened with uh, with animation companies. One of the reasons he said he wouldn't change. I want to talk more about his worldview, but just about him as a guy. He said, "I'm not going to let go of my older, skilled, talented employees to have them do it a new way. As long as we can do it the way that they've become accustomed to doing it, we'll do it. And when they retire, the new people can do it the way that they're comfortable with." Sure. But uh, as far as making these movies for children, and this goes into his pessimistic worldview and why it, it finally has to end with hope because of who it's for. Yeah. Uh, he says that one of the reasons he likes making these movies about complex issues and problems in the world for children is that adults tend to just say, well, this is the way it has to be. That's yeah. just the way it is. And he says if a child asks an adult and sees a problem, and he says child children can see problems, problems we pretend they can't, they get the, the big issues in the world. They sense it. They feel it. They have the ancestral memory of it. And they'll ask adults, why does this have to be this way when they see something wrong? And he said, a lot of adults, all they can say to them is, it's That's just, just the, way, the it way it is. Yeah. It's just the way it is. But he wants to give them something where they can look at that, where he can address it, and in a serious way, in a way that acknowledges that children do see what's wrong with the world and feel what's wrong with the world, and at the same time, give him or give them a blessing for the future. Yeah. Because he says, even if he thinks the world is headed in a bad place, he can never say to a child, you shouldn't have been born here. And the movie, he said in one interview, his like Princess Mononoke is his way of blessing their future. Yeah. I mean, like, there are problems, but at the end of the day, at the end of this movie, we can work it out and we can work together. Right. And at the same time, having respect enough for the children, he says that he doesn't want to give an ending that's a lie. Yeah. He wants the happiness of it to be true. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm James Foey. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. And we would love it if you could leave a, a rating or review on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at klex303, that's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at 
James Foey Jr., F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. And you can find Claire White, our usual host, at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E. Uh, hop onto our Facebook page or our Twitter where we're going to post some of the articles we used in our show. Our producer for this episode is not James Foey, but is Claire White. Woo! Nice job, Claire. Thank you. You've done a wonderful job producing. Uh, our logo was done by Patty Highland, and our theme was composed by Pete Rowan. Once again, this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures in Nerd Manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Bye.